Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by MUBI, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. back ladies and gentlemen to a brand new episode of the film stage show the movie review podcast for the filmstage.com as always i'm your host brian j rowan with me today to talk about isle of dogs the newest film from wes anderson we have bill graham Woo! we also have jordan raup filling in hello for michael Snydell. yes yeah but michael Snydell's out the only shoes big enough to fill that hole belong to our benevolent lord and master I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Of course. And um, yeah, like I said, we're here to talk about Isle of Dogs, the new stop motion animation film from director Wes Anderson, out in theaters now. Uh, before we get into that, the usual rigmarole, follow us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, search for The Film Stage Show, unless you're one of the people who's deleted Facebook because everyone suddenly now is concerned about all the stuff that we knew that they'd been doing for so long. In which case, Twitter. Also, you can let us know what you think of us on iTunes. Give us a comment. Give us a rating. Subscribe to us. All that fun stuff. And um, email us. Podcast at filmstage.com. We are brought to you, of course, by Mubi, the online streaming cinema that gives you more by giving you less. Each day they add a new film that you have 30 days to watch. So you have a constantly rotating selection of 30 films. That means that you don't run the risk of doing what I always do, which is going to a streaming service, fully intending on watching a movie that you'd never seen before, and then you just end up rewatching the entire season of Justified, which is what I'm currently doing now. There's a bunch of movies on Mubi that you should check out. Um, one of them that they've asked us to highlight is Kate Plays Christine, a movie that I utterly hated, but that the many people on this podcast liked. And, um, yes, it's- it's a fantastic film. It's a crazy and thing any to say, film that Jordan. causes a nervous breakdown for Brian J. Rowan is a great film. <laughs> that Queen of Earth. I'm sure there's another one. I oh, cannot Manchester by the Sea. Yeah, in yeah. a different way. Yeah, <laughs> that should a good be like a film break- festival if you ever program one. Just like <laughs> the Brian My. J. Rowan Nervous Breakdown Film Festival. Yes, and then you do a Q and A after each one, and it just ends in tears. <laughs> that would. That would be hey. an interesting film festival. I don't <laughs> on, know guys. who would want to come to that. <clears throat> so yes, Kate Plays Christine, part of the Brian Rowan Nervous Breakdown Film Festival, is currently on Mubi. Jordan Rapp, I yeah. understand that you have some other films on Mubi that you wanted to highlight? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a few uh, really solid ones from last year that are now getting um, you know, the Mubi release, which is nice because it'll reach a wider audience and they probably... Yeah. Um, called um Kexakalu, and it's an argentinian drama that was around um, a group of women extremely i think um i believe it was in our best cinematography of last year that roundup and it's extremely beautifully shot and it's just that you know the story is kind of threadbare but the um the images and the the way he frames people in them kind of what he's going for and so um and it's super short i believe yeah 72 minutes so uh well worth a watch um then there's two hong sang su films um 
Right Now, Wrong Then, which was one of the first films of his that got U.S. distribution a few years ago. And then um, another one, Night and Day. So those come with high recommendations. Um, a really strange one is called Ma, which is just M-A. And it's this kind of dance film project that also Ernie. Um, I actually didn't really like it that much. But if you if that sounds interesting to you, it's well worth a watch. So uh, definitely something to talk about afterwards. But yeah, there's definitely uh, some good selections as of late. All right. And you can get a free 30-day trial of movie by going to mubi.com slash filmstage and uh, enjoy that free 30 days on us. Again, that's mubi.com slash filmstage. We can also say that our podcast slash the filmstage show, you get access to our cool Slack channel where everyone's always talking about something. You also get access to our special raffles and whatnot. And uh, you help us produce extra episodes that you can enjoy uh, throughout the year so check that out patreon.com slash the film stage i do i have to give a special shout out to our uh, patreon slack members because so some days i'll like be have a busy day at work and not look and then there'll be like 400 unread messages and um that's a lot of dedication so yeah good, man. <laughs> and i try to read every single one so the conversation never stops but luckily the conversation is always usually pretty damn interesting it is it is right. we got some so. we got some we got some cool cats chilling out in our slack channel type of cool cats that would never say the word cool cats um anyway swiftly moving Indeed. on away from my my anachronistic speech let's talk about isle of dogs newest film from director wes anderson who's previously given us the grand budapest hotel moonrise kingdom royal tenenbaums amongst many others this movie stars the vocal talents of <laughs> Brian famous people. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, like, just like a lot of famous guys. Uh, yes. It's got Brian Cranston, Bill Murray, Edward Norton, um, Bob Balaban, for all my Balaban heads out there, Jeff Goldblum. It's got, uh, who else? Yoko Scarlett ono, Johansson. Greta Gerwig. Ono, Greta Gerwig, Harvey Keitel. We should say that there Ken is Watanabe. a handful of. Yeah, I was going to. No, no, that's the. Ken Watanabe is not. Is, he he plays a very small part, but the what's the guy's um, Koyu Rankin? This eleven year old kid is like the main character, quote unquote. And do, yes. don't don't forget inclusion writer. Yes, the uh, Corny B. Van Francis McDormand. Oh, and Francis McDormand. Oh, I thought you said that this movie had an inclusion writer. You're just talking about no. the woman who popularized <laughs> the term inclusion writer. Yeah, come on, guys, keep yeah. up. I, I I try. Anyway, I'm on, so I'm on Swin, the West Anderson I don't know if we've level. said her yet. Uh, there's a lot of people. We'll talk about it. <laughs> um, here is the trailer. The Japanese archipelago, 20 years in the future. Canine saturation has reached epidemic proportions. An outbreak of dog flu rips through the city of Megasaki. Mayor Kobayashi issues emergency orders calling for a hasty quarantine. Trash Island becomes an exiled colony. The Isle of Dogs. I don't think I can stomach any more of this garbage. Exactly. Same here. All right. That is the trailer. That is the trailer for Isle of Dogs. Let's uh, let's talk about it. Let's see what we thought. Um, before we do that, though, I feel like we should just address the elephant in the room, uh, the the accusations of Orientalism and 
I guess, appropriation that have swirled around this movie. Jordan Rapp, I know that you had some thoughts on this, but basically people are saying that Wes Anderson, as a white American filmmaker, is uh, stepping out of line by portraying a film that uh, takes place in Japan with the characters who speak Japanese that aren't subtitled and uh, only occasionally get translated and uh, using Japanese iconography and culture. And um, yeah, so let's, well, I just want to rip that bandaid off so that no one can accuse us of not talking about it when they only listen to the first 15 minutes of this. So Jordan Raup, I know sure. you said you had specific feelings on this. Why don't you kick us off? Yes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am definitely of two minds of, of this. I think it, it is interesting. So we, um, so at my workplace, which is uh, film society of Lincoln center, we had Wes Anderson come with uh, Jeff Goldblum and um, Jason Schwartzman and, and some other cast members for a Q and a, and someone directly asked him this and you can actually watch it. It's on our YouTube channel. Um, he, they kind of asked him this question exactly. And he kind of, skirted it and kind of his basic answer was that he kind of made this movie for the audience that would most watch it which i think is kind of a lame excuse which is like primarily american white audiences um and so i think that is kind of that kind of made me appreciate it less on that aspect of what he was going for because i do think there is something interesting where um where i there is one character i think that is completely uh um like he should not have done what he did with that character and we can talk about that um Mm -hmm. and it seems kind of like a dead end both in terms of like narratively speaking and just like what we're talking about with these um issues appropriation and and of um kind of white characters saving the day so to speak and so i think that's kind of ridiculous but um there was another article that actually brought up a lot of good points related to this it's um it's it's called what isle dogs gets right about jap about japan and it's from a japanese viewer um moiko fuji and it's in the new yorker you can search that and read it and um he talks about how um there's actually is this interesting thread throughout the film because um the japanese characters don't have subtitles there's actually all these like in jokes that only japanese viewers will understand and it kind of makes it almost a more special viewing experience for people of that native language and not only with the dialogue but there's also all the signage and and like graffiti sprawled across that actually have deep like deep meeting within in Japan. And so I, I, I do find that interesting. I mean, he did have a, not a co-writer, but someone who developed a story that is um, Japanese. Uh, Konichi tomorrow. No, I'm no probably butchering that. But um, so I do think those two vowels. <laughs> no more. Okay. Um, and yes. Yeah. They, um, so for me, it does, there is a lot of stuff in here that feels like, a white person coming in and being like, what's my favorite stuff about Japanese culture? And like, there's literally a, a, a sequence dedicated to like sushi making. And while it feels like it's that, like I couldn't imagine what's Anderson not having that scene in a movie about this. And at the same time, it feels, it does feel like he kind of cherry picks certain things um, and kind of filters it very much to his point of view. Obviously I wouldn't want a director to not do that, but I feel like because he decided to set this as a, such Japan as the backdrop and not kind of a fictional place. Um, he kind of, it's hard for him to get away with some of the stuff he does. Uh, but it does make for an interesting like setting and surrounding. And um, I just don't, I don't, I'm be curious what you guys think, but I don't know if I'm kind of mining the culture um, leads to um, leads to something more positive in the end. It just kind of feels like, 
it doesn't say like he's, it's not like he's saying anything about it, so to speak. It, it just seems like he's offering up what he loves to see and that's about it. Um, and then he goes and makes some bad, um, goes into some mis, mis, um, mishandled ways. And, and I think with some characters and narrative arcs, but in terms of like a setting, I don't think it's yeah, all that know, bad, but so for um, me, I don't know. Tell me what you think, Brian. I, it, it really does feel like it's primarily an aesthetic choice. Um, I think that obviously he is drawing from a lot of Japanese cinema. And so it makes a little bit of sense to set it in Japan. Uh, the, the, so like, I, I can't really say like I, I was sitting in a theater. It was me and then two other couples. And the one right in front of me was um, a couple that was uh, Japanese. And um, they appeared to speak and read Japanese because they were like pointing at things and laughing in moments where like nothing was happening that I could tell because I can't read Japanese. Um, and so they seem to like it. So like, you know, that's, that's a super small sampling, but it just feels kind of weird for me to come out and say like, this feels like a wrong decision when perhaps other people who actually would have an actual sub, uh, subjective point of view, don't have that problem with it you know at least those two particular ones obviously people could then say that you know they're not being particularly protective of their culture but like maybe someone else who's also japanese would i mean it's it's hard for me to know particularly with wes anderson because like the royal tenenbaums is shot primarily in new york i'm from new york his new york is nothing like the new york that i know so he he never really feels like he's truly trying to capture the reality of a place. He always is kind of heightening things in that strange, strange way. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we've seen it's weird because like filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino and pretty much anyone who's made made a Hollywood Western kind of, um, you know, kind of took from, yeah. you and, know, Japanese Westerns in a sense. Um, right, because then they've transposed. And, but that's completely like different. Because I mean, but yeah, go ahead. I, it's hard for me to know because I just, as a as an American, as a white American male, um, it's it's super rare that I find something like this offensive to the point that like I have to say something about it. I think the only time that I've ever felt that way is when we were watching American Honey, and I really felt like that was a movie that was like doing the cultural appropriation, misunderstanding a culture and a place grab bag type of thing that people seem to be accusing this movie of. But in that case, I just like it it just felt like worse because it felt like a movie that was trying to say something meaningful while not truly like addressing all of these poverty signifiers that it was kind of rolling in. Um similar feelings I had towards Logan Lucky. Mm-hmm. But like it's kind of like a cute movie about dogs and it feels, it feels a little weird to like throw I mean, that much like, on what, it. But again, yeah. the worst thing for me really is knowing Japanese culture that well, I can't say if like somehow the writing that I couldn't read was offensive. Obviously there were points in this movie where I was like, well, why does this character need to exist at all? Um, we can get into which one that mm. was, but I'm pretty sure it might be the one that you were talking about earlier. And yeah, there's a couple of things like that. I will say, however, like I'm willing to cede a lot of stuff to people um, 
because just because it didn't offend me doesn't mean it won't offend someone else. I'm not going to carry around the Japanese couple that sat in front of me in a theater on Monday night as a shield. But it always strikes me as weird when people get on a movie's case for not subtitling people. This is um, something that we never really talked about on this podcast. But Bill, I know that you had found a podcast that brought this up with a ghost story. And, you know, someone had written a letter into this podcast and was like, Uh it's really racist Mm -hmm. that the um, Hispanic family in a ghost story wasn't subtitled. And I'm just like, I just don't understand. I don't understand that one particular criticism because I've seen people say it about Island Dogs too, where they're like, well, if you don't subtitle them, it's a way of othering them. And it's like, well, what the hell do you think reality is? Like, sometimes you're not going to understand people. And if you have characters who don't understand it just becomes it almost seems meaner to subtitle someone who is then not going to be understood by the character who's i guess the point of view character so like in this movie in particular you have a bunch of dogs who can talk to each other and i think that like honestly having the movie in a different language from english makes a lot of sense in that way because it's a way of naturalistically putting you in the headspace of the dogs, just as a ghost story, not subtitling the Hispanic family was a way of putting you in the headspace of ghost Casey Affleck. I don't know if that seems crazy, but... <laughs> I mean, it, 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 yeah, it reminds um, me a little bit... Oh, dude. I was just going to say quickly, like, um, so the like Darjeeling Limited, which um, I... I know Brian, you don't agree with me, but I do. I love that movie, and I and I like it in the sense because you're following these kind of three assholes who have this beautiful culture around them, and they're only obsessed with like what they can do to um, move forward in their own life. And I feel like that movie had a better balance of through Wes Anderson's camera, he was able to appreciate the culture, but the characters didn't. But that was almost a commentary, you know, that was kind of running throughout the movie, um, that kind of like commentary. And here, it seems like the people that that most of the Japanese people we see, especially when we go back to the city, it, it they feel almost like window dressing in a sense, whereas um which I think that doesn't really do the movie any favors. Um but whereas the I thought some of the the Indian characters in um Darjeeling Unlimited at least had some more motivation and um they almost had more humanity than the white characters. And here it doesn't seem I didn't get that really from any of the from most of the characters. Um I don't know. If- I mean, the, there's only like there's only like two human characters who really have any kind of fleshed out anything in this movie. Mm-hmm. And um one of them is the the boy Atari who is known by the dogs or yeah, by the dogs as the title um the little pilot. And it's like it's his it's it's the movie's empathizing with him and the love of these dogs for him that like drives the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I don't know. Like, I don't know. It just feels like, you know, everyone is, is window dressing in this movie. That's true. But like the character, the human character that, that drives the story the most and that has the most impact and that you're like really rooting for, is is this young boy and and his dog 
So I got a couple of things to note. Um, first, that was a simplification of the ghost story complaint because there was a lot more beyond just the lack of subtitles for that one Mexican family. There was a whole thing. But besides that, um, I think the subtitles thing is interesting, but I don't think that's the main main feature and the main focus here. I think there's a couple of things going on. Um, and this cropped up with uh, Ghost in the Shell when a lot of journalists or even people over in that side of the country were chiming in. And a lot of Japanese people just really don't see whitewashing or orientalism and really kind of like call it out. Um, It's really interesting to see a lot of Asian Americans be like, yeah, but (laughs) just because they don't agree with it doesn't mean that we're necessarily wrong. It just means that they are so blanketed in, in that society in a way. And this is all a generalization. So, you know, if you are that outlier or are you know the 50 percent that don't agree with this fine but it seems like a lot of people will seek out japanese people and see like hey they don't have a problem with it and it's like okay but that doesn't mean that that's not an issue um and it's it's really weird that this is happening in in america where a lot of americans of asian descent are specifically calling this out and saying quit using Japanese people as kind of a shield, it doesn't mean that there's not an issue. And it's it's this real weird dichotomy of like just two different cultures where people over here are really like noticing this stuff and Japanese people are just like giving a big fucking shrug and just like I we don't care. Well, it <laughs> so is, it, is, it is, I think um you know, you bring up an interesting point. I think there is is something inherent in being I don't want to say displaced because that makes it sound like it happened negatively. But like if you're a person separated from your culture, you may almost be like more protective of it and like see possibly like the the inherent unspoken malice of doing something like that. Um, it's It's interesting because like I... I don't watch a lot of anime, but I've seen some anime. And if there's one thing anime loves doing, it's like cribbing stuff from American cinema and like American society. Yes, and 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 that's that's one kind of point of criticism of Japanese and Japanese culture as a whole is it's very westernized, right? Yeah. In fact, I've I've read um oh bollocks. Now I wish I had looked it up. I read something once and if I can find it, I'll try to tweet it out. But it was talking about how anime was in, specifically like an attempt by some Japanese animators to like cast off the stereotypical signifiers of being Japanese, which is why almost all anime characters have like an inherently Western look to yes. them. They often have blonde hair. They often uh, look yeah. white, you know, pale. And instead of, I don't know, <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to go down that route. But yeah, you don't have to go to the color palette, but people understand what you mean. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And then and then also with the uh, the eyes. Yes. Just like it's it's like having stereotypically massive, you know, three quarters of your head anime eyes is a way of kind of like bucking against the more racist conception of the eye shape of people from Asia. 
I think that's the best way I can possibly put that. Yeah. But so it's weird because there is like a cultural melange that happens. And again, I just, I, I guess maybe it's one of those things where it's like, you know, because America is so powerful, especially like white America, you like there is no cause for it to be upset when like other cultures crib cultural signifiers from us but this is that whole like punching down thing where it just feels like we're once again the socio-political bully just taking what we want from other cultures and instead of it being like land or natural resources or people this time we're taking their stuff their culture and and stuff like that. You know, yeah. I, I think I think it is interesting because you know I don't have a lot of legs to stand on when when we start to argue these points. As as we've all kind of pointed out, you know, we have various white backgrounds and none of us have any Asian descent in us that I'm aware of. And so it is it's tough to talk about this with any kind of authority or any kind of but you know the the best that we can do in this possible scenario is listen and read and you know just kind of absorb what other people are saying and there are enough you know the few among them there are enough asian american film critics that are calling this out and i think i think that's important i think that says something um whether they're specifically right or wrong in your heart doesn't really matter in their view, this is, you know, Orientalism and, and they're calling it out for kind of more than just the issues that we specifically have with like this one fucking character. Um, and, you know, I think there is a lot of things happening here in this film. I think one thing that we have to note is the development process of this film. Apparently, some somewhere along the lines, uh, Wes Anderson has always wanted to make a movie about about japan and then he was making a movie about dogs and then he realized why don't we just put the two together and i don't know if that's a great reason for this film to exist the way it is i can't figure out if that's like a better idea like because it almost feels like if Wes Anderson made a movie that was explicitly about oh, japan Jesus. yeah it would somehow be worse than this one where japan is like the liter- like the backdrop to the story. Yeah, and, um, and you know, there, there's a lot of like, it's, it's weird. There's a lot of weird shit in this movie. There's there's a couple of mushroom clouds, which is just why. Um, there's well, I, okay, we this is crazy. I have seen film. this mushroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I we should talk about the film. I just like I the the concept that like the the minor explosions we see, at least like the airplane one, are mushroom clouds is like deeply misunderstanding what makes a mushroom cloud but um i don't like that's that's one of those things where i just i just don't know at what point like for me the con the concept of like you're taking a culture and distilling it into like the 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 backdrop for your story feels a lot more necessary to look at than like the concept of is the shape of your animated explosion like the correct one i just it's just like i I don't know i I think i think it's it's hard for me because there are those those smaller things that people somehow like jump on seem a lot more to me at least like they're 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 not as interesting or meaningful to have a conversation about as like 
the concepts of like can a person like this ever actually do something that takes place in Japan like if you're a storyteller who has a deep love for another culture for whatever reason be it because of their cinema or even just like any other art that they create or their food or their general aesthetic like are you ever allowed to do anything there like are you allowed to do anything that might either be considered a celebration or appreciation or an exploration from an outsider's point of view. And I I just, I just don't know. I I think those are all good questions. Um, I'm going to touch on my two points and then we can just kind of quickly move on because we've wasted a lot of time talking about this. Um, I wouldn't say that this is a waste (laughs) of time. Okay. This is a very important conversation that we've been needing that has, that the world itself has been needing to have your two points. Um, the, the regardless of the shape of them specifically being mushroom crowd esque or or whatever the fuck they are i think there's something to be said for his attention to detail in this kind of animation and he could have made that explosion look like any fucking thing and the fact that he made it even resemble closely to a mushroom cloud or some similar shape is a little distressing because he could have just easily just been like, you know, an ex typical Hollywood explosion that just looks like fucking nothing, you know? Um, and so I think he is pulling from some kind of imagery. If, if it is mushroom cloud esque or not, that's kind of up to the beholder, but I think it's, it's not good. <laughs> um, I, the second thing I, is, oh, no. ahead. Ahead. It, it made me, it actually felt more like almost like Looney Tunes asked to me, like it didn't, that's what I yeah. was going to say. Fair. It, it's like a real, I mean, so much in this movie is Looney Tunes esque, which is when we get into just the part where we talk about the yes, movie itself, yes. that's going to be a big plus in my call. Um, and the other thing is, but anyway, Bill, your second thing, the, the other thing is, you know the the fact that all of the dogs are all pretty prominent american actors is and actresses are also is also kind of you know a little odd i guess i don't know why he didn't cast any japanese people in that fucking role like that seems really like obvious and something that like why why do the dogs speak english they're from fucking japan like i don't understand it and like they they don't speak english they have been translated into english well they they certainly sound english to me um and i find it interesting that like if you're going to cast a bunch of dogs in these roles, like why wouldn't you cast a German shepherd and make him German? Why wouldn't you cast some of these other people and just like make them the, the lineage of their, their actual like dog. I think that would be more interesting than just casting the greatest hits from Wes Anderson's films. Um, so yeah, that's, would it be more offensive to have a German shepherd who spoke in a German accent? I don't know. I don't know. That's an honest question, are, even though I'm laughing. These are these are questions to ponder, but you know, I mean, why are they all fucking Americans? Uh, I don't know. Exactly, because <laughs> they're easier <laughs> to get in the sound studio. Like I, I don't know. I think uh, that um, I mean, so so I'll, I'll use this as a, a jumping off point to get into just my actual thoughts on this movie. I think that this is a movie about two species 
who are very different from one another and have no direct means of communication and yet who somehow have forged a deep and abiding love for one another. And I feel like if you were to have like what's weird is this is another thing that people have said. It's like, oh, these dogs lived in Japan, but they don't understand Japanese. Like my dogs have lived in. Well, yeah. So one of my dogs has lived in America her whole life. The other one lived in Afghanistan for three years. Like they still don't understand English. They don't understand my language. When I say a single word that they know or make a hand motion that they know, they can sit down. But like, there's never, like, if I were trying to have a conversation with my dog, it wouldn't work in much the same way that it doesn't work in this movie. And the dogs actually say at certain points, when they hear a command that they recognize, they're like, oh, okay, I know what that means. Everybody sit down. And so they sit down. Like, cough, shape of water. Oh, God. <laughs> Eggs. Um, so it's... <sighs> So that's 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 just that's strange to me because what's what's really weird about all of this conversation and the 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 concept that people are saying like oh the dogs are given uh you know English words with American accents but the the Japanese people are forced to speak in their native language like makes it like an unfair othering type of thing what's funny is that this movie is a surprisingly touching story of like the bonds of love and commitment and friendship and empathy and grace that bind these two very different groups of people for lack of a better word together and like make them stronger as a team. And I just feel like there's something, there's something to that. Like it almost, it could have been interesting if they had just said, okay, fuck it, the dogs will speak French and the Japanese people will speak Finnish and then, you know, then we'll just have subtitles for no one. I mean, that would be an interesting point of view, but there's no world in which you're going to get that movie made. And I don't know. I- that, that seems like an odd, odd alternate history of what Wally could have been if, if the first, like, 30 minutes was expanded out for another 60. Yeah, exactly. But so, but you know, Wally understood the people, so it's different. Um, but like in <laughs> in my head, watching this movie, like aware of it and feeling it at a certain point, you know, I I could feel, I could feel the places where it would make someone else uncomfortable, and I was made uncomfortable by like the 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 implementation of a of a girl who is a foreign exchange student specifically. Let's let's move. Let's move past that. Right, but uh, this 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 is just folding into my general thoughts on the movie. Like her aside, I found this movie to be charming. I found it to be well animated, delightful. I was moved at many points, choked up at many points, and at the end, you know, I felt like this deep abiding affection for all of the characters that had been on the screen who weren't evil, uh, both both canine and human. And, um, you know, even being primed to see the issues, even feeling some of them myself, I still really, really enjoyed this movie. And I felt like it was the first Anderson movie in a while that, like, didn't discover its heart, like, late in the game, but that actually, like, had it from the beginning. But that's just my thoughts. Jordan Rapp, what did you think of this movie? Yeah, I um, I mostly liked it. I will say, I think 
by going for this kind of Kurosawa inspired epic scope and um, and with this like kind of genuine sense of adventure, I think he does that at the expense a little bit of like the charm. I think uh, after maybe like the you know twentieth fiftieth dog joke or something related to that, like it, it felt just kind of repetitive a little bit. The the script and by the, the second act, I thought it was a little bit dull. Um, I will say most Wes Anderson films, the first time I watch them, I find them kind of exhausting and alienating. But then when I go back and watch them again, I I like them more and more. Um, so I'm eager to watch this again. But just on first on first first blush, I it kind of I was hoping for some of that fantastic Mr. Fox charm and just kind of wittiness and um, visual inventiveness throughout. But it, it but this mostly keeps it spare and. Um, obviously aside from a few sequences, uh, but he keeps it, you know, just due to the, due to what he's going for, um, his inspirations, it, it is like this kind of spare epic scope, which is impressive in a stop motion animation. Um, he really nails that. Um, I think this is one of Brian Cranston's best performances in a long, long Isn't time. That weird. <laughs> probably since, probably since Breaking yeah, Bad. <laughs> I, I 100% agree with that. Um, Tilda Swin, amazing, the best character, and even though she has the shortest shortest amount of screen time, I think. Um, yeah, I I will say I that heart. That's a good point. You know, your final point there is is strong. I do think that that uh, that is true. I guess for me, like just the relatability. Even though I am a dog person very much, I just didn't get that as much as I was hoping for. So um, as of now, it's probably on my lower ranking of of Wes Anderson films, but. Um, it's once you kind of buy into his um, shtick, so to speak, you can't really. Um, it's not like you could hate any of his movies, I think. And so I'm in that camp where, you know, he brings such a visual, um, a visual scope and, and particularity to pretty much everything he does that um, you're just kind of riding this wild ride. Um, and it, it's yeah, it's fun. So. Um, yeah, and great music. Opening scene is amazing. The opening, you know, um, credit sequence is great. Um, yeah, uh, I mostly liked it, but uh, probably overall lukewarm. All right, Bill Graham. I I found this film obviously is absolutely gorgeous. Um, I mentioned it on the Slack channel, and I, I'll mention it again here. Um, do you not ch- pass up a chance to see this film in cinemas because it is absolutely beautiful and on that size of a screen with that much detail, there's there's just a lot to soak up here. Um, I think in a lot of ways, this brings out the best and worst of of Wes Anderson. Um, it is just hyper stylized in a very, very fun way. That being said, as far as the film itself and the narrative and everything like that, um, this isn't anything necessarily new for Wes Anderson. And I think that's, that's both good and bad. I think there's an ease and a rhythm that you fall into with these kind of films where I feel like Grand Budapest really had something interesting with, with the Willem Dafoe character where there was a certain level of darkness and menace that he kind of takes a step back on in this film. Um, there's, there's stakes and there's things that obviously happen in this film, but I feel like there was just a darkness in Grand Budapest that he really took a step forward, and this film feels not like a step back, but a step sideways almost in a lot of ways. 
I think narratively there's there's some obvious you know glaring issues, but those aside, I think this film has a lot of quirky attitude and fun that is still very charming, and I feel like a lot of the visual gags and sight gags are are obviously very charming. But overall, I found this narrative and the whole experience a little elongated and um, just wishing for something a little bit more from Anderson. So, yeah. See, that's interesting to me because I, I really felt like this was like another step forward for him. Um, I don't know. Just like, just the way that like there was like a, a, a pure emotional through line that wasn't obscured as much as it usually is in his movie by like the crazy aesthetic choices or by the kind of cool affect of everyone else. Like I, I love the Royal Tenenbaums. I love the life aquatic, but those are movies that really do like coast on weirdness and strangeness and the characters before like coming to an emotional epiphany at some point that you then realize was sort of always there, but like, Maybe mm. just as like a theme and not really so much as like a plot or a character consideration. And this movie, like from the beginning, th- like one of the one of the the first things that we hear a person say is uh, like what happened to man's best friend? Like this concept of turning your back on people and and just like kicking them away when things get tough instead of like fighting for them and trying to help them. It's, um, I don't know. It's really weird. And what's also funny to me is that, uh, all the controversies that this movie had, uh, somehow we never heard anything from like hardcore right wingers about how this movie was like pro immigrant propaganda. I don't think very many, uh, right wingers saw this. Yeah, film. They never see the movies they complain about bill. Sean Hannity tells them to be upset and they dutifully comply. Um, (laughs) So, so there's that Uh, before any of our right wing listeners get upset. I'm a registered Republican. um, And that is me covering my bases. So anyway, this, it's just weird because I really was watching this and I was like, wow, this is like Wes Anderson. Like maybe he loved dogs as a kid and he finally like wanted to get in touch with his soul (laughs) because like the grand Budapest hotel has just like all kinds of weird violence and stuff that's kind of played for a laugh but like i felt real kind of mortal terror and concern and sadness in a lot of what i saw in this movie it, one of my favorite gags in it is the um flashback to the pile of dog bones oh god like the, the kennel. Yeah. Um, yeah. No one else laughed at my theater, but I was cracking. It was, um, uh, yeah, that, that whole. <laughs> those dark undertones, even though he, there's these lovable scrappy dogs. Yeah. But, yeah. It's, um, and that's the funny thing is that like, even with that in the movie, like there's still so much room for like this weird heart. I mean, like the, the line about that's in the trailer that's like, you know, are you going to help the little pilot? And he's like, why should I? And the, the female dog nutmeg says, because she's a 12 year old boy dogs love those i'm just like oh my god that's like there's so there's so many little like bar like not barbs but like tiny observations like that that like let you know that like for once in a wes anderson movie there's like some sort of like real emotional point there's like a through line that's drawing people forward 
um, that's not even being obscured. Because, like, The Life Aquatic, I, I, he wants to blow up the shark for revenge. And then you discover that it's, like, a whole thing about his life and the loss of the people who care about him and struggling with his own mortality. But, like, that's buried beneath so many layers of other things that have to be peeled back. And this movie just out and out says, like, yeah, sometimes a boy just loves a dog and a, lo- a dog loves a boy. And that's enough to launch this crazy this crazy journey that they're all on yeah i I think because you know this area of trash trash island is so spare like he needed to have that introduced from the beginning or else um it would just kind of be a spare um setting and also kind of a spare script and i feel like by having that through you you know at no point you're not you're you're questioning at no point are are you um questioning what kind of the motive is um but yeah, I don't. I guess for me, it was you could kind of see how all these things would coalesce, and especially as Anderson loves to do, have all these multiple storylines kind of coming together um, at the end, and it just kind of felt like Bill was saying a little bit into kind of this almost like predictable, um, and not in a bad way because I think even Wes Anderson doing predictable things is is still enjoyable. Like to see the pieces fall into place as he set them up isn't is an enjoyable thing to watch. Um, but I guess for me. There's the, there's this um, right before he did Fantastic Mr. Fox, which um, you know was absolutely largely limited. But his films before that too, he was kind of reaching this point where it was like it almost felt this felt like kind of this like free flowing kind of jazz with his characters, where you kind of wouldn't know what's happening or where they're going off to or what the next thing they're going to do is. And and then after Fantastic Mr. Fox, he realized he could kind of make these perfect storybook creations, um, and you see it kind of reach its live action apex with Grand Budapest Hotel, where um, every part of that movie is so engineered to a T um, from the framing to, you know, you know, just every line feels like, you know, it was so perfectly thought out. And, um, and like I said, that's a good thing. Like, I'm not saying that's bad, but I do miss that kind of, that kind of off the cuff energy that uh, is kind of missing. I feel like in these last few films, um, and that certainly continues here. I don't know if you feel the same way, Brian. <laughs> I guess no, not. Not, I was about to say, how could you not know if I feel the same way? Have you not been listening to me? <laughs> well, no, no, just like that. That I know that you like what he's doing here, but do you, do you know what I mean with that kind of like jazz-like energy that was in Darjeeling at all? Or? I mean, uh, I, am I alone? You might be alone <laughs> on that. I mean, I, I'm I'm a I'm a big Fanderson. I don't know what we call ourselves when we like. Oh Wes, boy. I'm a Wes Fanderson, Bill. What's the problem with it? Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh yeah, but like Darjeeling Limited. Y'all gotta come up with a better name. Look, if you can come up with a better name than Wes Fanderson. <laughs> no. Then I'm just gonna keep saying it now because it clearly upsets you. I mean, I don't know. I never really liked Darjeeling that much. And uh, even even his like jazzy improvisational improv improvisational? Yeah, that sounds about right. Um mm-hmm moments in in other films like uh, you know sure like you know life aquatic there's that moment where everything kind of bursts into violence and it goes handheld and search and destroy comes on and suddenly like a glock nine millimeter handgun can shoot 47 bullets without needing to be reloaded like (laughs) that kind of stuff is super fun but like and i and i love it in those movies i just don't particularly for this film i just don't really miss it like I don't feel mm. like it's a necessity in this movie. Like, like I'm not upset that, um, you know, classic rock wasn't played while Robert De Niro slowly beat the shit out of someone in Hugo, you know, like, because it's just not a necessity for that particular story. 
Yeah. I guess, I mean, I guess it is a filmmaker's dream to be able to orchestrate everything so perfectly. And I just, I guess for me, for some reason with this movie, the rhythms he was playing with just were a little less interesting than um, Grand Budapest. But, um, but yeah. Bill, any thoughts? Uh, I, uh, let's, I mean, we can't we can't really talk too much about this film, to be honest Let's with you, without without yeah, without spoilers. without Joe putting into spoilers. Yeah, I, I just I, I want to kind of interrogate what what you talk about, like with the heart and things like that. Yeah. Um, is it is it just this this boy and his dog character, or is it or is it something else? And from this point on, I guess we're jumping into spoilers, yeah, so spoil do them. not. Yeah. If you if you want to know if this boy finds his dog, if that dog finds his boy, and if those dog <laughs> and that boy have to live on Trash Island for the rest of their lives, turn away now. But we're now firmly in spoiler territory. Bill Graham. Mm, yeah, the, my question still stands. <laughs> but I, wait, 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 I'm curious about the heart that you feel like is running through this film. Is it just specifically the boy and his dog or is, is there something else as well? I'm curious what you think the other heart of this movie could be, but yeah, it's, it's really just like, I, I, I have, I have there's no, idea. well, I think there's a, there's a, a somewhat of a camaraderie heart with the other dogs. I yeah. think that's one angle. I also think there's that there's, there's this, um, uh, the, yeah. um, of the, um, the Japanese kind of renegade, um, what, what do they call themselves? Like the, student activists, you know, the dog. Yeah. The yeah. Dogs. They literally um, wear buttons that yeah. say student activist, which is just beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like social services from oh, yeah. what is that? Moonrise Kingdom. Moonrise. Yeah. So that's her character. Her name name. Is social services. Uh, yeah. No, I, I think there's these other strands that are interesting here that, um, but yeah, I guess nothing really comes close to the central heart of the film yeah, i mean you so so the primary heart of the film as i would delineate it would be yeah the the the, the boy and the dog and the boy and the dog that he actually so there's so there's spots who's his dog and i find the kind of commitment that he and spots have to one another to be really touching like that scene in the hospital when they first meet is um is great the way that he talks about spots yeah. and it's funny that i can say the way he talks about spots because i can't understand a single word that that kid is saying but i don't think you really need to like to get to get the point it almost is nice to like not have to hear wes anderson dialogue from like the most emotional character in the movie because <laughs> i just you know god god love wes anderson but i don't think he could write like a truly affecting emotional scene. Like most of his best scenes are people touching each other while one of them silently cries. Um, the, <laughs> the submarine scene from life aquatic, uh, Royal in the ambulance from the Royal Tenenbaums. Anyway. So I, that that's the main thing, Atari and spots. And then just like the way that chief slowly starts to break down and like, grows attached to atari i mean that's all that's all great stuff especially as a person who has always loved dogs and now owns two dogs um especially since one of my dogs was like a problem dog that the that had already been returned to the rescue once 
and that I've had to work like really hard with my wife and I to like get him to be even like, <laughs> I mean, he's still not the stablest dog in the world, but he's a hell of a lot better than he used to be. So I just think that there's watching that happen and watching how like Atari who's injured gains strength from chief and chief slowly like grows to learn to like accept like the affection and attention of someone else, despite the life that he's lived. It was really, that was really touching. And then when uh, Peppermint has her puppies, that was also really cute. I mean, the other thing that the movie maybe like was trying to position as kind of like a heart was um, Tracy, Greta Gerwig's character. And isn't it funny that in this movie of puppets and dogs and everything, the character that I liked least was still played by Greta Gerwig. But um, <laughs> no, yeah, no fault of her voice acting though. No, I don't fine think. voice acting. I didn't even realize it was her at first. But like, what a f- fucking pointless character. Um, yeah, I don't. That was, yeah. yeah, I don't understand what he was going for. Yeah, I don't. I don't understand. Tracy Tracy Walker is the most problematic character. And also the most kind of needless. And the fact that like the movie ends with Atari and Tracy kind of like, I guess, being a couple or at least like working together is just kind of like nuts because like I don't give a shit about her and Atari. I give a shit about Atari and Chief. Like that's the romance. Yeah. Like, I, stay away from that crazy there's, girl. There's there's a lot of like romance that's unnecessarily put into this film for no fucking reason like that I can tell it's 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 is it peppermint or it, who is Scarlett Johansson that's yeah, not Meg no yeah I, I also like, didn't quite the, yeah what the fuck is going on there like why why is he hitting on her in that way why is there a romance at all why does there need to be a romance there I don't understand that the purpose of that character there's a lot of like falling in love that these like people are putting upon themselves in the story just completely unnecessarily. And for someone that works in such like precision and detail and things like that, I find it really mind numbing that he threw two completely unnecessarily unnecessary romances into the middle of this film that otherwise is like, very well and intricately plotted and things like that. Um, even down to like the government and how like it functions where, you know, ultimately the resolution is that Atari's, you know, uncle like ends up basically saying, yes, I did all this shit. You know, we need to bring this down. Like, like that's the ultimate resolution. And it's like, holy shit, that's, you know, for for your main bad guy to actually come around and start to say that, I'm not sure if that's a, a commentary kind of on, like, Japanese culture and their honor system or if it's just, like, that's really what he was going for there. But, like, it's it's pretty nice to see that kind of resolution from, from a main villain. And yet, in the middle of this, we get Nutmeg and we get, like, Greta Gerwig's character just being, like, I think I love you. And it's just like, what? Yeah, she's like, How? Oh, what? I have a crush on you. And it's like, why? That doesn't see. I don't have a problem with the nutmeg thing because I don't know. They're dogs. Um, and also like her scene with him is like the first softening humanize humanizing for a dog like scene that we really get like his kind of gruff defenses lower a bit. 
and he's talking to her and then she you know she drops that line about dogs loving 12 year old boys and like i feel like she is she's she's in this movie so little compared to the tracy character and she does so much with her vocal performance and she's actually like a part of the journey of a different character that like it helps it it does it's not as bad like i could see the utility in it and it kind of does sure, something but Tracy is so removed from everything and in the end her like i don't I, just just in like a pure plot way like i don't 100% know what she accomplishes because Atari gets back with it the help a, of the dogs, it, and then he's the one who brings the government down, and she's just kind of like a rabble rouser on the outside who doesn't even really function as like a plot exposition device. She, I mean, she, she does nothing gives that, her, that we really she give her like evidence, the evidence she was building up of the yeah. corruption, but then it's just the dogs and Atari are already there at the ceremony, so it's kind of, yeah. And they just confirm that about the cure working. Yeah, it's yeah, um, you could just have you could just have the the doctors do that. Yeah, totally. Like her 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 inclusion is like I said, probably the most openly problematic aspect of this this whole movie. And I and I just think that it's weird that it's like for such a needless character. Yeah, I've not seen a good defense of of her character. <laughs> that is for sure. Um, no, cause it's not even like, like I said, it's not even like, you know, he wants to commit to the, the Jap, the no Japanese subtitles or anything. So like he needs an American character who can like give plot because like we get translations of the plot as needed yeah, from, and- um, like the translator or the Insta translate device that's used. I mean, like, I just don't. I just don't 100% get it. Yeah, and, and coming full circle um, with you know with what we were talking about at the beginning, I feel like the biggest problems the the biggest problem that Anderson has with it's not what he kind of adds to um, to the movie to you know present Japanese culture in a way. It's what he takes away, and I feel like he takes away something that could have been there with a Japanese character um, in her place that could have done something more interesting. And and that actually, I think, has a worse effect than any sort of, you know, oriental orientalism that he does because it could have been this an, an amazing moment and he could have written the character better and had it, you know, if it, if it was just someone that was, you know, on this, um, uh, you know, um, anarchist side that had that, you know, that was fighting for years um, in this. But it's the mere fact that it's someone specifically from Ohio, too, which is like, <laughs> it just seems like the... What? It, it, most, it's yeah. funny because because I mean this goes top to bottom, doesn't it? I mean, in in a I don't I don't want to crucify Greta Gerwig in this way, but I mean certainly she's the character that's reading these lines. She certainly had access to the script and screenplay, and I feel like she's in a in a at a level where she could have given feedback to Wes Anderson. And I'm just really curious as if a that happened and B he just kind of rejected it or just like didn't know what to make of it because someone I, I, had to say, Hey, I kind Wes, of feel with his maybe track this record, character... like just everyone in Hollywood at this point just wants to work with him. And I, I don't, I think they trust him with the vision, which 
I mean, that's. I also that's, feel like this is exactly the type of character that Greta Gerwig wouldn't see a problem with. <laughs> oh, Brian. Look, I'm just saying, oh, okay, geez. so like it's a spunky young girl who like, you know, is like a go-getter no, reporter. Justify. No, I'm I'm not. What are you talking about? Don't justify it. This literally seems like the type of thing that Greta Gerwig would love. Like a spunky go-getter young girl who helps to like save the, all the dogs in her own way. I mean, and, and gets to say like, darn it, I have a crush on you into a tape recorder. I mean, like these are things that I 100% see... Greta Gerwig totally geeking out over in a movie. They they align with her twee sensibilities. That does, yes. But her white savior role, maybe, maybe, just maybe, might give her pause and be like, hey, um, am, am I the well, only, only if- one creating this? Like, what's what's going on here? Why am I the the one that's like that stands up in front of the all Japanese class and is very noticeably like the one character that's like outspoken and like like, hey, I think this is a government conspiracy. And everybody's like, present (laughs) just like what? I mean, maybe I wonder if it's a statement on Americans and our love of conspiracy theories. Like, I, I don't really know much about other countries, but like, are other countries as into conspiracies as we are? No. Like, hmm. Is it a meta commentary? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. live in another country. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're listening to us from another country, I know we have international listeners. Let us know if you and uh, your fellow countrymen love a good conspiracy. Um, Examples of conspiracies could be uh, the flat earth theory. (laughs) Jesus. Those are not conspiracies. (laughs) 9-11 being an inside job. No, that's Um, not a conspiracy either. That is a conspiracy theory. No. Bill, literally anything that involves more than one person is a conspiracy. Yeah, no. What do you mean no? I'm I'm giving you the the definition definition and examples of a conspiracy and you're saying no. I understand. I understand, but like people can say gravity doesn't exist as well, and and all of these things. It doesn't. I don't want gravity not existing isn't a conspiracy theory. The the part where the conspiracy comes in is in the cover up. It's not the crime bill. It's the cover up. <laughs> Qui bono? Who benefits? Anyway, back to Isle of Dogs. Um, what was I going to say? Um, Here's a funny thing. Uh, did any of you realize that Isle of Dogs sounds a lot like I Love Dogs? Yes, and I've heard... Um, I Sorry, at this point, I'm just like... every Everyone that tweets it, it's like they think they're, this, they're some breaking news story, and I just... It just has it's gotten to be a lot. Does yes. Well, outside... Of, I mean, this is like one of those... This is one of those outside of film Twitter things, because oh, I, yeah. I brought it up this weekend, and people were duly impressed, because they didn't realize that. Uh, I'm, I'm too deep Not in. Everyone's I'm on too Twitter, deep Jordan. in, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I loved it every time. I'm so... Um, yeah, no, that, that's... Yeah, not everything yeah, I'm th- saying is for you two idiots. Sometimes <laughs> I'm saying it for the listeners at home. Hey, hey, I I am not uh, in, in the film Twitter sphere, right? I, uh, I avoid that shit. From Twitter. Yeah. Because I'd like I'd like to have fun when I see a movie, not eighteen months before. <laughs> That's oh, ridiculous. Shit. Come on. Throwing the gauntlet down. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I I love I'm jealous of my wife who goes to see movies that I've been anticipating for like five years and she like doesn't know what they're about at all. I wish I could have oh, that. I just out. can't. I know. Well, I'm you too, do. I'm you do, do run a fucking 
movie site. So, yes, you know, you're, that is your cross to bear, sir. Yes, I have mostly stopped watching trailers, which is a big help. But um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've done that too. Um, yeah, like, I mean, did you guys um, like the, well, first of all, this, the, I, I really like the score and the soundtrack. The, that song, I Won't Hurt You, is great. It's on repeat. Spoilers for our end of uh, podcast oh, music. Oh, all right. Yes. Um, <laughs> wow, yes. that no, on I the nose. On, on the wet, cold nose. <laughs> oh, shit. But black or pink, um, Bill? Um, always black. Always black. Um, always I, on black. I, uh, I really love Jeff Goldblum's character in this film. I love that he keeps it like he's the rumor monger. And I, I was listening to a podcast that was basically talking about like, is he kind of a commentary on dogs, like inability to keep a lot of information in their brain. And so he's just like, he's just that weird dog that can remember a lot. And so his rumor isn't necessarily rumor. It's just like facts that they've all forgotten and he keeps like remembering at at like weird moments and he's like hey so did y'all hear this rumor because like we don't see any of these dogs go off on their own so the fact that he's bringing rumors in like (laughs) unless unless he has something inside his ear like how is he hearing this rumor and they are not, you know? So it's, it is this weird (laughs) thing where he just keeps bringing up like all these rumors. Um, I loved, I love that aspect of it. I just yeah, it's love because there's the dog, the Oracle that like everyone thinks is a future seer, but like <laughs> yes. he might be the one with an actual like talent. Yeah. It, it's, it, I, I love the Oracle and I love the fact that they, a, it's a pug and B it's like, like very noticeable that like he doesn't have any fucking talent whatsoever. He can just like, I guess he, he reads Japanese. Is is that what it is? Like, um, but he just watches TV. Like that's where he gets all this yeah. information. It's just like, uh, I love that, that there's like a destroying of that kind of like, um, what is it? The, that caricature. And it's just like, no dude, he can, he just watches TV. Like that's it. <laughs> I don't know. There's there's a lot of like silly shit in this film that I really really love. Um, I love when the fights happen and it's just like <laughs> a cloud, and it's just yeah. like it's it's just so perfect. Um, there's there's a lot of like little little stuff like that that I found um, just really really beautiful. I love the the fact that wh- what is his name? Captain? What what's what's Chief. Brian Cranston? Chief. Chief. Chief, I love the idea and I kind of picked up on it. And like, if you know me at all, you know, I'm notorious for not picking up on shit. And (laughs) he like I picked up on the fact that like he does kind of look like spots and maybe possibly if he get got like a bath. But I never realized that they were going to just go full on into it and be like, no, he's just a dirty ass dog. And when you clean him up he literally looks just like spots except he's got a a black nose mm-hmm. yeah no that was a that was a twist for me i was like oh my god what the hell happened i like i literally to the point where i was like did that boy just bleach this dog and just turn him in <laughs> to his dog i thought it was gonna be like some weird takashi Mike type shit um but no it, he was really just a very dirty stray dog which is funny because 
that's definitely what happens to my dog lightning um if he doesn't if he doesn't get a regular bath he starts to lose his inherent white fur people are like oh that's a beautiful brown dog it's like easy though <laughs> no um <laughs> what was i gonna say okay so the the clouds of the clouds of fists and teeth i think uh plays into another one of the big kind of influences on this movie which is uh warner brothers cartoons looney tunes um talking about like the the explosion clouds it, there's a lot of like tnt and uh wily e. coyote falling off of of cliffs in those types of things and um the same with the kind of like rolling cloud of fists and just all of that i will say so like this movie was like willing to go dark in some ways that I was not expecting, like a dog getting its ear ripped off and yes. then the ear getting carried away by rats as an opening was pretty intense. Um, I think the the fake out that Spots has died because no one could figure out how to open his cage, which was like, you know, I know that I talked about this movie having like a real actual beating heart. Um that was a moment that made me wonder if I had like deeply misjudged this movie uh, just because, you know, the dogs are walking the boy and they're like, yeah, so, you know, what we understood, like he was really nice. Everybody liked him, blah, blah, blah. They just never learned how to open his cage. And then it's just his cage with some dog bones <laughs> in it. And I was like, holy shit, that is incredibly dark and really fucked up. And what is the rest of this movie now? Um, luckily, the second that they showed the obscured collar, I, I pretty much knew what was up but um but that it is still I, yeah. like dark a dark thing that happened to yeah. a dog named uh and the fact that Sport. they talk about a dog committing suicide <laughs> like but the difference is i think that like in a normal wes anderson movie like buckley in in the royal tenenbaums getting fucking slayed by eli cash when he crashes his car into the building like that's not there's no there's no purpose for that. Um it's not like there to do anything except give Royal a chance to buy a Dalmatian for the boys. I mean, but in this movie like he is illustrating like the unhappiness and unpleasantness of this island and the dogs, you know, who who again like are are a civilized companion of man who are just being like abandoned there. But um yeah, still totally willing to go super dark to the point where like I legitimately thought no one was safe uh, when they went into the, what was it? The crushing, mashing and incineration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something crazy like that. I was like really freaked out. I was like, is that just the end of those docks? Is that just the last we'll ever see of them? Luckily it was not. And then um, at the end, I, I 100% thought that spots had died, but he had not. Yeah. I, I wish I wish I had that much like faith in him doing anything devious to these dogs, but unfortunately, Bill, he I didn't. loves killing dogs in movies. Have you not realized that? Uh, the dogs uh, a high body count. He killed. He killed uh, the dog in the Royal Tenenbaums. He abandons the three-legged dog to the pirates, uh, Cody in <laughs> in the Life Aquatic, and then that one dog in Moonrise Kingdom is straight up murdered. And there's got there's probably well, the cat, one I can't think cat of that. but that's in oh the Grand cat Budapest, yeah the yeah. cat in uh, Grand Budapest Hotel 
Maybe Wes Anderson is, is, is not his... afraid to waste a motherfucker as long as a motherfucker is a domesticated <laughs> animal. This is his apology for this film. <laughs> yeah, but like those aren't main characters, so I still feel like I don't know. And, and like I said, like without like, going into, if you don't into, think Cody into, was a main character in Life Aquatic, I don't know what to do for you. And, and not to say that, like give too many spoilers for grand Budapest, but people fucking die in that movie. And like, yes, they do like big characters die. And so like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that happening with this film. Um, for some reason, I'm not, I'm not sure why I felt so safe. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just, I didn't, I didn't feel that inherent kind of like darkness. Um, and when I thought Spots was dead, I was like, holy shit, that's that's pretty fucked up. Um, but that's it's more fucked up in like w- why he died than anything. And then for him to be brought back, I was like, oh, OK, this movie's safe. So, yeah, maybe, maybe safe. I don't know. I like uh, Jordan. Did you feel any danger in this or were you on Bill's kind of? No. Right yeah, I mean, definitely the the one scene of them going into the um, incinerator slash masher, whatever it was, that was a little kind of I got Toy Story three vibes of um, <laughs> certain death. I love but, the way that that resolves itself, though. Yeah, um, yeah. Just, it's just broken, and they're like, "Well, I guess if it was working properly, we'd be dead by now." Yeah, yeah. I think I think he plants enough of these like kind of scary touches in with the dog bones and the you know ear getting ripped off that you do feel there is some danger that could be had, but I don't think. I think his overall aesthetic is so kind of charming and nice that I think it's it, it puts you at arm's length, which um, is good because then he can undermine those things and, and examples I said. But um, no, I never mm-hmm. felt like genuine um, danger, and that's part of the the stuff I was saying um, originally with kind of the rhythms the, of the story. It just it felt like okay, we're gonna see this this boy go on an adventure, and we did, and you know, and and I could have predicted the you know various storylines matching up perfectly to. Um, have him save the day, you know, on the bridge and and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I didn't feel danger, but at the same time, it was still an enjoyable enough ride. Yeah, it's um, it's funny. So, I think something I've talked about on this podcast before is my love of watching the trailers for a movie and realizing that like no one in the marketing department had any idea who this movie was for, <laughs> because this movie had like a trailer for eighth grade and like a couple other like indie films like that. Um, the one with Melissa McCarthy. Oh, yeah. like can you ever forger. forgive me? Yeah. Can you ever, was it? can you ever forgive me? Is that the name of it? Yeah. I literally don't remember. From the the anyway, yeah, she's like four teenage girl. Come on, Brian. Great film. Sorry. No, I don't know. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go Anyway, so <laughs> yeah, no, it's it was like so. Here's a, a a movie about a girl in the eighth grade, and here's a movie about like an art forger, and it stars the main character from Withnail and I, and then suddenly it pivots, and it's like here's a trailer for The Grinch, here's a trailer <laughs> for some other kids' movies, and I was like, oh shit, this is gonna be a really interesting movie. And I can feel that because, like, obviously, whoever, like, got to pick the trailers for this was like, okay, well, it's Wes Anderson. All right, but there are dogs in it. And the dogs are pretty cute. And it's about a boy who loves dogs. Oh, man, but this is pretty violent. And that dog just called that other dog a bitch. But she is a female dog. So, like, that makes sense. 
Ah, fuck it. I don't know. Let's just put everything in there. Yeah. It's like whenever I see like a movie and it's like, here's a dark indie thriller that's coming out. And also here's a romantic comedy and fuck it. Here's a documentary. And I just, you know, it, you can almost feel the person who cuts like all the trailers to go before it going like, fuck it. I give up. <laughs> the, uh, the best trailer placement of the year so far. I mean, the, the thing that makes me most happy and excited is even though I'm sorry, Brian, I didn't love a quiet place. Um, the, <laughs> I, I didn't hate it though. I, I wasn't Michael Slendell level, but anyways, um, the hereditary trailer and the fact that so many people saw that and are going to now go see hereditary, hopefully, um, is great. So it's, yeah, they really, they really lucked out with that. Cause I, I, you know, I assume that like, they were like quiet place hereditary it works, yeah. you know, it's not, we're not paying like Avengers money to put this in front, but they still got like a massive thing. Yeah. In fact, something that I've been quietly watching and kind of feeling very happy about is the fact that like A Quiet Place is probably going to end up earning a lot more than Ready Player One. Yeah, oh, that it, it definitely is a better Spielbergian movie than than Spielberg's film. So, yeah, yeah. I was really happy to hear someone else on a podcast really like lay into Janusz Kaminski. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, 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 mean, I haven't been on the podcast in a while. I, I hated Ready Player One so much. Uh, yeah all right that's the next I, I, hour of this podcast no, is just like, talking shit about ready player one i couldn't believe it actually because even i am a even a, i'm like a spielberg apologist i mean i even like the bfg and yeah uh yeah oh, oh god so that's, bad that's that even steals my initials and i do not like that <laughs> that's true um, yeah bill fucking graham right yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, no, Ready Player One is a, is a disaster, um, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, so and this is not a disaster. No, this no, a... I, I actually I've been I have I it's been at least I think like two months since I've actually see, seen Isle of Dogs. I want to go see it again before it leaves theaters, and I, I believe yeah, no, it's, it's now in the widest possible release it has. So it's prime time. It is. Yes, yeah. I was able to go to my local multiplex. Luckily, no one else was there, so I, I unfortunately don't have any fun stories for you people at home about nearly getting into a fist fight with someone. Oh, next time, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I, I do. Anyway. Have, I have a fun story if you want to hear it. We have yeah, um, so they, the whole cast came to you know Film Society for the screening, and we had like 50 um, toys, like these like really high end like collectible kind of I Love Dogs toys that Fox Searchlight like, produced in the back. And um, and so they came in as the screening was happening and we were supposed to give all these toys to our winners because there was like this Twitter giveaway where we gave away like 50 seats. Anyways, so um, Wes Anderson comes up to me and is like, will you um, do, do you have any more of these? Can I give these to my daughter? <laughs> and he's like with all these Fox Searchlight people. And I'm like, um, sure. And but I'm sure they can send you some if you want, like more than just the few we have here. Um, it was adorable. <laughs> And Jeff Goldblum was, they were all just like obsessed with these toys when, and this was like the last stage of their press tour. So I don't know why they were being deprived of these toys. <laughs> um, I could just imagine Jeff Goldblum like picking up his dog. Yeah. Oh yeah. He, he was doing wow, all this that. Is a, uh, this is a real, uh, yeah, an excellent <laughs> likeness of, uh, of Duke. <laughs> oh. His, um, if you watch, I have his cadence down, yeah. but I can't do his actual voice. <laughs> not to plug, you know, not to plug the video any further. But if you do watch the Q and A that we did, he, if you just watch him, his reactions to people's questions is just incredible. Like he, he puts so much effort into like observe, like just, <laughs> just like thinking about what you're saying. 
Um, whereas that was great. Just watch him. That's my. We should have had a Jeff Goldblum cam where it was just all on him, and then you could just watch the feed of just him. Um, like the panda cam or like yes. the camera on the eagles. Yes, yeah, exactly. Totally. Anyway, we appear to have run out of things to talk about for this movie. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, go see it. Yeah, it's a, it's a sweet, nice little movie. It's probably like, you know, one of his more simple stories, yeah. but uh, it's I like it. It's I'm I'm looking forward to him to jump back into uh, live action. Though. So hopefully it won't take four years like this movie did. Um, it shouldn't, but yeah. You say jump back into live action like he's been out for forever. I mean, well, this is his first stop motion film since. Yeah, but if you take, so it was, it's. Fox. Well, Grand Budapest was four years ago, and that's the longest break he's ever had in between films. So if he takes another maybe three-ish years, that's like seven years between live-action films, which is fairly a fairly good yeah. amount of time. Who knows if we'll even be here then? Exactly. Yeah, there's Syria and North Korea. Came out in 20- Bill, I can't hear you at all. <laughs> now I really can't hear you at all. gone all right we lost bill graham <laughs> well that's fine we're at the end of the wait bill yeah. bill you sound like you're very far away i'm right in front of the mic so up the record level you, bill you might need to up your record level or like your gain or something I do not know. <laughs> all right well we're joined by the ghosts of bill graham for the end of our episode <laughs> Anyway, we're brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming <laughs> cinema. Uh, you get a free 30-day trial of Mubi by going to mubi.com slash filmstage. Uh, centerpiece film at the Brian, Rowan, Brian J. Rowan Nervous Breakdown Film Festival. Kate Plays Christine is currently playing, uh, along with all the other cool stuff that Jordan was talking about earlier. Uh, great thing about Mubi is if you're uh, – <laughs> it's funny. We're, we're already starting to talk about like summer vacations, and it almost snowed today. But um, if you're thinking about getting away when the weather finally gets nice, uh, Mubi helps you out by letting you take some films with you. You can download to your start smart device and uh, watch them on the go. You can uh, watch via PC, laptop, uh, mobile device. you got your Fire Sticks and your Rokus. You can watch on that. It's got the best. It really still truly does have the best app for any of these fucking things. Um. So yeah, go to mubi.com slash filmstage for your free 30-day trial of movie. Also, go to www.patreon.com slash show and give us your money. Give it to us. Um, that is all for today, though. We will be... What are we... What are we what's coming out this week? You were never really here, Brian. Oh, excellent. I'm always glad to hear when I haven't been somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, that's the new Lynn Ramsey film starring Joaquin Phoenix. And uh, is that actually going to be wide? Um, wide enough to Ish. talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's already in like 50 theaters or more, I think. Oh, my God. 50? That's that's all, that's a major market. Embarrassment of riches. <laughs> <laughs> Might be more anyway, so yes, we'll be talking about You Were Never Really Here. And then the week after that, we'll be talking about Avengers Infinity War. Avengers. I think that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> Aven- I don't know. Avengers. I've never heard it before. You put Avengers, though, and not Avengers. <laughs> this is a foreign film, though, is it not? I think it is. The yeah. main character's name is Thanos. I assume it's Greek. <laughs> yes. It's by Yogos Lanthimos. They got him to direct the... <laughs> it's, it's great. I would love for Disney to just have so much fuck you money that they could just, like, say, Yorgos Lanthimos, here's $50 million. <laughs> please make 
Like, here's all of our D-level superheroes. Please make one for us. They were, if they wanted my attention, they would have done that years ago. But they clearly that's don't like, care. That's like some phase six nonsense. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> instead, we have uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp to look forward to. Uh, anyway, uh, so the wheel of commerce will eventually destroy us, but not before we talk about you were never really here next this this week. We're recording this on a Tuesday. It's throwing me off. Yes. Um, can, I, can I also so give just it. a few shout outs to some amazing limited release films that people should seek out if they can? Sure. I'll be very quick. All right. Two horse related films that are both actually technically three, but The Rider <laughs> is a fantastic film I saw in, um, in, in New York Film Festival last year. And that how is much are these going to make us cry? Um, Bill Graham is back. Oof, it's hard to tell. The rider is more purely just emotional, not in like a crying sense. Lean on Pete is the other one. Andrew Hay, his new film who did, he did 45 years and weekend, both excellent films. And, um, and yeah, and that movie will probably make you cry a little bit more, but, um, yeah, great. And then, um, grounding it out the Lucretia Martel, her first movie in nine years um, called Zama is uh, pretty incredible. And so, yeah, that's they're all out now and you can go see them. Well, you can't maybe unless you live somewhere that has them. But <laughs> be on the lookout. Like one of them sweet ass coastal cities that we live in. Yeah. Not you, Bill. <laughs> Eventually. There's a well, I mean, kind of I'm kind of a coastal uh, not city, but uh, state. Japan, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but Texas is fucking huge. <laughs> yeah, that's not my fault. <laughs> Houston to Austin is DC to New York City. It's crazy. Yeah, I'm. I'm yes. I would think that, that the is, rider it's would true. be it's not your fault. the plane in Dallas soon. It feels like a very. I mean, it's t- North Dakota or South Dakota, but it has kind of a Texas vibe to it. Someone who feels like they know the area. That's that East Coast thinking. No, it's true. I mean, I'm, I'm actually... Everything I'm west at, of the Mississippi is Texas. No, I'm very curious at Bill's um, reaction to both these films because I feel like they do get kind of the Midwest in a, in a very... in a nice in a nice way. I think they really capture... Does the movie Lean on Pete... Uh, does the song Lean on Me play over the end credits but with me changing no, Pete? Uh, no. Lean on Pete is the name of his horse. That's like the full name of it, Lean on Pete. Oh, I love horse names that are like that. Yeah. And Steve... Come here, Steve, Steve Buscemi plays the, um, the kind horse. of, yeah, the, <laughs> the horse. No, he plays kind of this, um, strung out, uh, like horse trainer. Oh, no, <laughs> no. Steve it's Buscemi playing someone who's strung out, man. <laughs> it's always good to see an actor bust out of their pre-prescribed <laughs> no, box. I promise it's good. Very good. No, I, I do want to see that. If only so that like at the end of the movie, I can start singing lean on Pete. I mean, you I'm could. You can. You can sing it. I don't. You won't be singing along along with the movie, but people will definitely look at you, uh, and people will definitely sing along with me because it's going to be infectious. Actually, it's going to be clapping. Be something great. tells me that that's going to be on Ehrlich's like movie thing. And what you need to do, Brian, is just recut it and just l- sing that song over every Lean on Pete like clip that he inserts in. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then republish it and then like tweet it at him. <laughs> I don't. All I right. think he was actually kind of mixed on it, but that's a good. That's I was about to say. <laughs> Damn it's it. a lot of fucking effort to troll someone who I don't even really yeah. know at all. Though I, it's funny though. The one thing I didn't like about the film is that they do end with some sort of pop-ish song, which seems very incongruous to the whole rest of the film. But 
it's is not it's it not Perry's no fire. no no it's like it's like kind of a country-esque ballad it's like i don't i don't even know the song but you'll have to see it and find out that's the big cliffhanger is it gunpowder and lead no it's not it's okay anyway um my favorite the my favorite moment in any movie ever is when Katy perry's firework plays during rust and bone yes there's that just is... so many layers to how amazing that moment is because it's like here's this bullshit pop song about embracing your differences and being awesome. And it's used as a bullshit pop song, but then because of all of the things that have happened, it somehow gains like this transcendent beauty in the moment when she's kind of like, anyway, go see Rust and Bone. Let's end this podcast like we've been trying to do. I, yeah, I, do you were breaking up when you said that. I didn't realize you were saying Rust and Bone. I thought you were talking about the interview and the use of uh, firework in that film, which now every time I hear fireworks, it like brings a tear to my eye because I'm just laughing so hard. So, Dear God. Yeah. <laughs> no, Rust and Bone, the one with the killer whales yeah. eating a woman's And that, that, um, that director has a new movie coming out this year with well, – John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix as assassin brothers. It's a Western dark comedy. It's going to be incredible. So mother of God, yes. that sounds amazing. The sisters, Sorry, the sisters end. brothers is what it's called. So. That's uh, Jacques. Jacques Odiard. 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 That makes yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. He did a prophet, which I didn't like. No, prophet, which I didn't see. Wow. You didn't like Un prophet. No, no. I remember going and seeing that in the theater and being like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, and then I saw Rust and Bone, and I was like, "Where was this shit in a profit?" Anyway, let's uh, let's keep on trying to end this podcast. Yes, let's, do um, it. <laughs> let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and next time. Uh, let's start with our guest Jordan Raup. I can be found on Twitter at JP Raup and on uh, the film stage. And we have our can coverage coming up. I will be out of the country, but someone will be posting. Do we have a can cam? We don't have a can cam, unfortunately. Damn. All right. Yeah. Bill Graham, what about yourself? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CableBFG. You can also find me on the Patreon channel. Um, looking for the best Jeff Goldblum impressions. Please do not send me any of those. That's a joke. I was about to say, you're looking for them, but you don't want to find them. <laughs> anyway... I can be found on Twitter at Brian J. Rowan, my personal site, dearfilm.net, the course, thefilmstage.com. And um, that's, that's, that's enough. <laughs> People keep finding me on Letterboxd, and I'm not sure how. But anyway, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, episode where we talked about Isle of Dogs. And uh, tune in next time when we talk about you, we're never really here. Golden and brilliant without a love.